turning to Genesis chapter 2. Thanks, Nicole, for uh, leading us in the reading. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he was doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into, two, into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Thanks, Nicole. Seems as soon as there's any uh, Bible names to be read out, Nicole gets the reading. Just happens that way, I don't uh, make it that way. Uh, if you're an enthusiast of 60s rock music, or perhaps a historian of hard rock or heavy metal origins, or maybe just a big fan of The Simpsons, you will know the song In a Gata de Vida, Baby, by Iron Butterfly. Uh, you might know it because of the epic drum solo, maybe a few, uh, or the psychedelic 60s vibes, or... Maybe the fact that it goes for 17 minutes all up, uh, which apparently blew out to like 35 minutes one live performance in the 60s. Or it might be because in 1995, uh, Bart Simpson snuck it into the church's order of service as a so-called hymn one Sunday morning, and after Reverend Lovejoy uh, announces it as In the Garden of Eden uh, by I, Ron Butterfly, the church organist proceeds to play all 17 minutes of it before uh, passing out on said organ. But what is interesting is that the song was actually meant to be called In the Garden of Eden. And it's actually written as like a bit of a love song from Adam to Eve. That was the purpose. Uh, but I think when the original vocalist first played it, uh, he was a little bit drunk and the drummer just wrote it down as In a Gutter de Vida. Uh, history was made. But it is too the Garden of Eden, or the Garden of Eden, that we find ourselves today. Uh, as we move into the second chapter of Genesis, 
Just last Sunday afternoon, I was talking about utopias and paradises and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, places like El Dorado or Shangri-La. But it's the Garden of Eden that is the original heaven on earth, literally heaven on earth. And it was a real place, a true utopia, a paradise, albeit uh, a paradise lost. And this garden is, is now the setting and the context for the second half of our series uh, as we, in that context, consider some of God's creation ordinances, we might call them, such as work, as rest, worship, obedience, marriage, family, and some others along the way. But before we zoom into the garden, we're going to just zoom out for a few minutes uh, just by looking at verse 5 there. Read that with me again. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. Uh, So there's no vegetation because there's two key things missing. Uh, And that is rain to water the earth and people to work the earth. Rain and humanity, water and workers were missing. Both crucial elements for the sustainment of God's Word. That's the way that He designed it. Under His sovereignty, these two things were necessary. But as soon as the next two verses, God has provided both of these things. So verse 6, streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So now plants could grow and creatures could live. There was water. Now some have said that because this verse doesn't mention rain, that maybe God didn't send rain, possibly even until the flood in Genesis chapter 7, which by the way is about 1,500 years later, uh, when it says the floodgates of the heavens were opened for 40 days. And I just want to say that that's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, It also says at that time the great springs of the deep burst forth, which according to this verse were already opened. And there's no reason to conclude really that no mention of rain straight away meant no rain. Uh, God immediately provided the second need, which was mankind, so why not the first need in all of its forms? But the most important thing here that that we have to take note of and gain significance from is is that God harnesses the chaos of the water once more. And he uses that to give life to the land, to its vegetation, to its creatures. Remember the waters uh, were the formlessness. They were kind of what symbolized the non-order before God speaks in Genesis 1. It's what we call neutral chaos. And just as God harnessed and tamed it in Genesis chapter 1, so he harnesses it and tames it here again in Genesis 2. And it begins this really significant journey of water, of of the symbol of water throughout all of Scripture, which we, uh, we can't dive into right now, no pun intended, but it starts here. When God harnesses water and he gives life through water. And as it gives physical life, it eventually symbolizes spiritual life in baptism, uh, which, by the way, we get to celebrate in a couple of weeks' time. And, of course, life in the new creation. There in the new Jerusalem, there's a river of life flowing through the city. And so God provides water 
and he provides mankind. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God takes lifeless earth, you know, the dust of the ground, and he breathes life into it. He makes it a living being. I mean, we cannot skip the incredible wonder of this verse. How God can take literal dirt, mud, clay, whatever you want to describe it as, and bring it to life. How He can shape it into the intricacy of a human being with all its cells and organs and all the little details. And then breathe life into it. Living beings shaped in His life. And then his ability to harness and to tame, to form the formless and to order the chaos, he gives that to man as a worker. And that is the nature of human work, to tame creation and to take care of it, to harness it and to work it. And so here again we get this Really important order that God is at the top. He is the superior creator who orders, who creates something out of nothing and then provides water, which is life and workers, living beings for that creation. We are inferior creatures formed from the dust and yet given honour in the work of taming and caring And even giving life. He gives us that ability too, although we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks' time. So when we zoom back into the Garden of Eden specifically, we see that God places these two very things into the Garden. He places water in the form of those uh, four rivers and all the richness that goes with it. And He places the man, puts him in the Garden to work it and take care of it. And that is the man's home a place of incredible blessing, with life-giving water, with pleasing food, with rich resources, with plenty of pets, and eventually a wife mate to share it all with. I mean, what a provider our God is, right? What a generous giver that He would give all of this. And sometimes it's good to just stop and to dwell on what He's given, the richness of what He's blessed us with. To stop thinking about all our wants and all those little details and to just return to our core needs, to water, to food, to a home and to give thanks to God for what He's given. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. We're just going to pause and we're going to pray and then we're going to sing together to just praise God for all of his blessings. So let me lead you in prayer. Father God, we just want to pause at this time and give thanks to you, our provider, our good, good God, who gives in abundance, who gives richly, who blesses with love and seeking to bestow on us so many good things. We want to thank you, Lord, for water, 
But that which falls from the sky freely, which can be gathered, which flows through the rivers, water which gives life, which we can drink, which we can use for washing, which we can do so much with, Lord, without it, we're dead. And we just thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for food. How the water has has, uh, watered the earth so that there can be vegetation, there can be food that comes up. And Lord, we thank you for that wonderful blessing. Lord, not just for food as it sustains us, but food in all its variety, in all its tastiness that we can enjoy. Lord, we want to thank you for homes. Like the original garden, Lord, you have given us places to rest and to live, to have family, to connect with each other, to open up to visitors, to share what we have. Lord, we thank you for our homes. And Lord, we want to thank you for the ability to take care of what you've given us, to harness and to tame, to look after. Lord, we just praise you for your generosity, for your rich provision. And we pray that you'll receive praise even as we sing this song as a prayer for the goodness that you've given. Amen. Why don't we stand together and sing, It is good to sing your praises, coming from Psalm 92.
Please have a seat. So in the garden, we get that wonderful picture of God providing so much to us, water, food, homes, and so much more. But we want to add another important provision to that, which is work. Work. Uh, It's the first ordinance that we're considering from this chapter, the wonderful gift of work in all its different forms and varieties. Uh, We started talking about this last week when we looked at the purpose or the responsibility or the role that we have as image bearers. And here we see it further applied. One of the core needs of the garden was someone to work it. And one of our core functions as people is work. Work is good. Work is a gift. Work can and should be enjoyable. God worked in creating the world. He continues to work in sustaining the world. Jesus worked in redeeming the world. And we work under him, contributing to all those purposes. If you are anti-work, generally speaking, you are anti-God's image. If you scorn work in general, you scorn God's good design. And if you live to just stop working to do no work of any sort, if that's what retirement is to you, then you reject God's calling and His will for you in this life. If you think like Mark Twain who said that work is a necessary evil to be avoided, you've missed something crucial in creation. Work is good. Now, it's true when we get to Genesis 3, we find that work has been frustrated significantly. The ground is cursed with weeds. Childbirth is cursed with pain. Complementary gender roles are cursed with confusion and coveting. Both ways, I would say. And this plays out in all of our work today, doesn't it? Every job comes with mistakes. Labour comes with injuries. Child rearing comes with all sorts of naughtiness. The office place comes with computers. And it all comes with broken, sinful, stupid people like us. Uh, Just this Friday gone, Kath and I had one of the worst experiences with IKEA we've ever had before. Talk about frustrated work. Uh, Angering to the nth degree. Now, it turns out it was a faulty product, but man, the stubbornness that I had in trying to just make it happen anyway was incredible, and I wear much of the fault in that. But the reality is that each one of us is the biggest problem in our own work. Now, we can always blame other things, oh, it's the boss, or it's this or that, but we're usually the biggest problem. Each one of us has a rebellious heart that often denies the goodness of work. And one of the ways that that is expressed often is boredom. It's boredom. And that's a negative word, by the way. That's why it's in red. We get bored with our work. We procrastinate and we whinge and we distract ourselves. And we just don't like our work. It's boring. Imagine working without any of those issues. Imagine if if it was always fulfilling, if it was always joyful, if it was always a pleasure. Imagine if you could go to work every day with excitement, always looking forward to it. 
That's how God designed it. That's how it was meant to be. There was no boredom before the fall. Creation, the garden, caretaking was always exciting. It was always engaging. It was always fulfilling. All that taming and naming that Adam was doing and the plants and the animals, all of that was a treat. It was a joy. Tim Keller, in, uh, in his book, Every Good Endeavour, um, which is a good book if you're looking to read something on work, he says, work is so foundational to our makeup that it is one of the few things we can take in significant doses without harm. Indeed, the Bible doesn't say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but it directs us to the opposite ratio. Leisure and pleasure are great goods too, but we can only take so much of those. We can only have those in small doses. Whereas work is good more often. Now that doesn't mean that workaholism, workaholism, workaholism isn't an issue. Uh, of course it is. We're all prone to idolatry and addiction in all sorts of different ways. But work can be good for us in large doses. And yet I want to add to that, I want to clarify that a little bit more. Work can and should be varied and inclusive. It's not just about your career or your job. It's also your family. It's also your ministry. It's also your body and looking after that. It's everything, really. Everything that we do. It took me so long to understand. Uh, my, my wife, Kath, is an occupational therapist uh, by trade, and it took me so long. still don't fully get what that is. But the best explanation she ever gave me was that, as well, everything that we do in life is really occupational. It's, it's work. And that's what they seek to do, is to help people fulfill that occupation. But it goes the same here. Work is really, it's everything. In Colossians 3, Paul instructs servants and slaves uh, as such. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And this is how all of us should approach our work to the glory of God. You know, if you're ever wondering why you should get up early and get to the side or get to the office, well, it's to glorify God. If you're ever wondering, uh, you know, why you should persevere with those kids or clean the toilet again for the millionth time, it is to glorify God. But His glory also determines our priorities. We cannot glorify Him in our job if we are voluntarily neglecting our family or our church family. It seems today that so often work is just this, you know, excusable thing that means you don't serve in any other way. No, work, work's too busy. That's not how it's meant to be. We can't glorify God in our career if it leaves us no time for our relationship with Him. We can't glorify God in our work if it just makes us hard-hearted and selfish and cynical and bitter. And when it comes to career choices and job decisions and time allocations and work locations and all of that, the key factor needs to be the glory of God. How can I best glorify Him in my work? In every way. 
How can I best serve him and serve his image bearers in my work? That might be little tiny decisions for any given day. It might be huge decisions about your career. Tim Keller highlights the difference between a job and a calling. The former, he says, you do really for yourself. But the latter, the calling, is something you do for that higher purpose that God has given you as a human in his image and for the higher purpose of his glory. So don't just work a job for money. That's not what Christians are called to do. Work a calling to love God and to love others and to serve his kingdom in all the work that you do. Home, work, family, all the rest of it. And as we come now to the area of rest, you probably know that it's jobs that we can get addicted to and not callings. That it's jobs and careers that create workaholics, not callings, because callings always recognize the one who calls. And the one who calls demands work, yes, but also demands rest. And so today what we're doing is we're, we're talking just briefly about rest for the rest of this time, uh, especially in its pairing with, uh, note I'm not saying contrast to, it's pairing with work, but we're going to pick it up again next week when we think about worship and obedience, and especially Sundays and the Sabbath and church and all the rest. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, God gives the divine example or the divine model of resting on the seventh day. Uh, And as the Sabbath law says in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God rested from his work. Why? Was he tired from it? Was the all-powerful God somehow spent from all that hard work? Out of breath? Did he reach his limit? Not a chance. He could have kept working for an eternity. In many ways, he does. God doesn't need rest for himself. Psalm 121 says that he neither slumbers nor sleeps, but is always keeping watch over us. So why does God rest? Well, firstly, because this is a specific rest after the initial work of creation was completed. Yes, God continues to work in sustaining the universe, and he did that on the seventh day as well. And yes, the work of creation and redemption and recreation, it continues today and it happens through us, and often that happens on the seventh day as well, doesn't it? But the initial work of creation was finished. The world was made and the completeness of creation and of the creation week, whether or not it's literal, includes rest. A time of rest, a day of rest, a rhythm of work and rest. No matter how you view the creation week, the days are for our understanding as days. And that includes a day of rest in our week. And that brings us to the second reason. It's for us, his creatures, who do get tired. 
Uh, Lou Phillips uh, from RZIM uh, Speaker, he shares a helpful illustration. He talks about going out running one day with his younger nephew. Um, and he notices at one point that his nephew is starting to get pretty tired. Uh, he's not, he's fine, he could keep going for kilometres, but he says, oh look, I'm feeling a bit tired, I need to have a rest. So that his nephew can say, oh yeah, 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 me too, I'd like to have a rest as well. And this is what God does for us. He rests in order to teach us rest. If not for his example, we might stubbornly keep working until we crash and burn. And so God shows us how important rest is for us. And you can imagine that little nephew going, oh no, I don't need a rest, and he's puffing away. You have a rest, you're soft, you're weak, I'm going to keep going. I know better. We do that sometimes, don't we? And so the world, though, has generally stuck with this rhythm for centuries. You know, often, uh, at least in the modern world, a male would work five days in a job, they would work for the family or the home on the Saturday and then rest on the Sunday. Maybe some of you still keep a similar pattern. True, things have changed a lot in the world today, but the principle of a rusted day off still stands, generally speaking. It's usually adhered, whether it's the weekend or not, workplaces will provide those rest days because without them we would burn out, we'd go crazy. But it goes deeper than just the rhythm of the week. It also is about the context, the garden itself. Think about the garden with me. The garden is this wonderful context for work. It needs cultivation, it needs taming, all the rest of it. But it's also a wonderful context and a beautiful setting for rest and leisure. No better place to rest than the Garden of Eden. And so think of Eden with its lush vegetation and its flowing rivers. And then think also of Psalm 23, which we read earlier. And and if you can, try and let these two things merge in your minds. Look at verse 1 to 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He provides. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters, life-giving waters. He restores my soul. He refreshes me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He doesn't just say, hey, this is a nice option for you guys. This is is something good. You should try it one day. He makes it happen. It's essential. It's essential. It's like when a doctor keeps a patient in hospital deliberately because he knows that if he doesn't, they will be up on their feet too soon and doing all these sorts of things that they just shouldn't yet be doing. Rest is not an optional extra. It is mandatory. And it comes back again, I think, to the problem of boredom. You know, the garden and Psalm 23, it shows us this picture of constant satisfaction, constant joy in God. But boredom with Him and boredom with His goodness ruins our rest as much as it ruins our work. We fail to just stop and sit in joy for who God is. We get sinfully bored, we seek amusement. We cannot just be satisfied. We have to distract, we have to escape, don't we? 
And I think this highlights how rest is not just about chill time. It's not just about switching your brain off, although sometimes that's needed, isn't it? It needs to be about resting in God, in His goodness and in His provision. Which brings us to this next reason that most importantly, rest is about faith and perspective. Uh, Tim Keller, again, he says it well. He says, to practice Sabbath is a disciplined and faithful way to remember that you are not the one who keeps the world running. You are not the one who provides for your family. You are not the one who keeps your work projects moving forward. You never work in God's stead. Like he said, oh, I'm done. You guys take over. That's not how it works. You only ever work under his enabling. He doesn't need you to do it for his good or even for the good of others. He wants you to do it for your good and how that, yes, impacts us as a community, as a society. But he also wants you to rest for your good. To rest knowing that he has it all in control. One way or the other. To be still and know that he is God. As Psalm 46 says. Again, God rested upon finishing the work of creation. And it points forward to when Jesus rested after finishing the work of redemption. Remember, it is finished. Look at Hebrews 1 with me just briefly. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And remember, through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he continues to sustain, but there, after he finished, he rests, seated at the right hand of God. And we can rest, as followers of Jesus, we can rest because God, through him, continues to sustain all things and rule all things from the right hand of the Father. We cannot change that. We cannot add to that. We cannot match that in any possible way. We can only serve Him faithfully in our work and then rest in His promises and provision. We're going to come back to Sundays next Sunday and the meaning, the principle of the Sabbath and to an extent the ultimate rest of the new creation. But for today, know that you need to rest. You need it. Every fibre of your being needs it. You need a Sabbath day, a holy day. 
And you need to rest in the provision and the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the way that you've designed us in your image to work, to serve, to create and form, to maintain and sustain, to build, to help. And Lord, to work in in so many different ways. We thank you that we can work in our jobs, in our homes, in all our relationships, in every part of life. We thank you that you've built that into us, you've made it good. And we just confess, Lord, that so often we make an idol of it or we despise it. We put it in the place that it shouldn't be and it can rule over us. It can take your place. And Lord, we're sorry when that happens. When work becomes our idol. Father, we pray, help us to work for your glory. To serve you, to serve our fellow image bearers and to serve the kingdom in everything that we do. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us rest for when we get tired and rest to have a break from our work and rest to stop and to acknowledge that you are the one who is ultimately at work and you are the one who is in control. And again, Lord, we confess that sometimes we refuse to rest Or at other times, we make rest our idol and we get lazy. Lord, we confess this. We ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that, Lord, we might see rest for what you intended it to be. That we can rest in you and your goodness and your provision and your sovereignty. That we can rest knowing that all is well and that in Jesus it is finished. And Lord, we pray that his work in redemption, his lordship at your right hand will help us to work for the kingdom and to rest, knowing that you are fulfilling all things. And we pray it in his name. Amen.